Well, if you could begin making your way back to your seats, that would be wonderful. Um, and if you've got your Bibles, grab them and head on over to Luke chapter 10. Now, some of you are wondering, I thought we were in Ecclesiastes. We are, um, but we need to start in Luke chapter 10 together this morning. Luke 10 is a well-known passage and place in the scriptures where Jesus answers um, one of the most significant questions of his ministry, uh, and it's, it's not the only time that we hear Jesus say these things. Um, in this sense, Jesus is actually asking a question, and the man from Luke 10 is providing the answer, and it's, and it's a bit of the opposite of what happens when Jesus is at the end of his earthly ministry, the, the last week of his life, and somebody comes to him and says, hey, what's the greatest commandment? And you're going to remember this if you have church background or church history, that Jesus' answer was, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, those commands come from two distinct Old Testament passages. The first, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And it's where Moses has, has led the people, he's recasting for them the things that God wants them to know. And that is a place in Scripture where we are told what the Lord wants His people to know. That first and foremost, the priority of their lives is to have no other or higher devotion than the love for the Lord. Now, the neighbor as yourself part is not ever attached together in the Old Testament. It becomes attached in the New and it becomes attached as Jesus is asked the question by the religious ruler who comes to him during the last week of his life. It becomes attached by even this, this teacher, this lawyer in Luke 10. And it becomes re-articulated throughout the New Testament. But the love your neighbor as yourself is actually then quoted from Leviticus 19. And in Leviticus 19, which if some of you are reading the Bible through in a year, you're probably really close to Leviticus 19 right now. Um, oddly enough, my Bible in a year plan had me reading Leviticus 19 this morning. Um, so we're kind of all right in and around that. Um, but in Leviticus 19, you have in the very beginning, almost I believe it's verse 1 or 2, the Lord saying, I want you to do some things and I want you to be holy, and I'm going to give you some ways to pursue holiness, and you're to pursue holiness because I'm holy. And so there's a command for God's people to do some things, and he grounds the command of what they should do based on the character of who he is. God says, I'm holy, you need to be holy as my people. And he begins to walk them through how specifically that looks. And in Leviticus 19, verse 15, you have there the phrase, love your neighbor as yourself. Now that all rolls forward then to the New Testament where in the kind of middle stages of Jesus' ministry in Luke 10 we have somebody coming and asking a very significant question, and the answer given is those two parts. Love God, love 
others. And what amounts to happen in this section and in what Jesus says in Matthew and how this is re-articulated by Paul in Romans chapter 14 and even by James in his, uh, the latter stages of James chapter 2 is that we're given two broad categories to which we are to think through and process life with. So this all kind of rolls up and rolls forward to here now, 2017, that you and I are to consider and evaluate our actions and our heart's inclinations on these two broad categories. Do I love God? Am I primarily seeking to love the Lord? Is the direction of my life love for God first and foremost? And is that then seeing itself manifested in love for my neighbor. So what you have in Luke 10 is then this really fantastic and well-known parable of Jesus answering the question. So let's go to Luke 10, verse 25, and let's just kind of step into this. And this is, this is Lord willing, you see how this connects to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Um, but we've got to do some work to set it up. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Now, a lawyer in this period in time would probably have had the first five books of the Old Testament completely memorized. And so he would have been a lawyer of Jewish law. So it's a little bit different than a lawyer today where they're, they're a lawyer of American law. I mean, we're talking a lawyer of Jewish law. They would have known the law, the first five books of the Old Testament, in and out, potentially having it memorized. He came to put Jesus to the test. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's a significant question. What do I I need to do to get saved? Jesus responds, what is written in the law? How do you read it? So he responds with a two-part question. What does the law say? What is your interpretation, Mr. Lawyer? How do you apply this law to real life? Verse 27, and he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Now, time does not permit us to figure out this morning all of the things from the Old Testament law that do continue and all of the reasons that they don't continue because there is a, a special relationship that believers have to the Old Testament law. But here's Jesus' point. Let me just try to summarize this for you. If this man would have really gone out and tried with everything he had to love God and love others, he would have learned that he was not able to do so perfectly. And that's part of the intent of the Old Testament law, that it presents to you and I, it presents to Jewish people, a standard that we realize as we try to live perfectly by it, that we can't live perfectly by it. And so insert then the sacrificial system and all of the animal sacrifice that atones for the sin, and and you have then what the Lord has set up as a as a way to point forward to Jesus Christ who would fulfill the law perfectly and then enable his followers to have all of their sin and guilt and shame removed and be able to fill and pursue the law 
or obedience to God as a direction of their life. So you tracking with me? We were tying together some really massive biblical themes here. Um, so Jesus is saying to him, I want you to go, and I never want you to break any command. You go love God with everything that you have. You love people with everything that you have. And you go and do all of that. If you do all of it perfectly, then you will have eternal life, which Jesus did, which this man never would have been capable of doing. Now, notice really interestingly in verse 29. The lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, and then now shares the story of the good Samaritan. The lawyer was trying to identify what group of people he was specifically supposed to love and care for, which in turn would also allow him to identify which group of people he was not bound to love and care for. And Jesus answers his question, and who is my neighbor? As he sought to try to self-justify his own actions by saying, I want you to think about this man who got robbed. The examples that Jesus gave of the first guys and the second guys that passed by him were examples of this man's own countrymen. And the example then that he gave of the good Samaritan and why this story is so, so fascinating and so powerful is because the Samaritan had, would have culturally had nothing to do with the Jews. They would have hated one another. And that's who Jesus indicates this man's neighbor is. He's supposed to step in to those who are being oppressed. And he's supposed to engage there. Because those who follow the Lord, those who are his people, do not sit on the sidelines indifferent in regards to those who are oppressed. They engage. That's part of the point of the Good Samaritan. And so you see that love for God... And love for one another is central in the Old Testament and the New Testament because it is central to the character of God. God grounds all of his Old Testament commands to love him and love each other based on his own character. I'm holy, you go and be holy, and here's how you do it. You love your neighbor as yourself. Now, it, it is no secret that there, in our world today, in our culture, in our nation today, there is a raging debate of what this looks like. And I'm not at all this morning seeking to step into the particulars of that debate. Quite frankly, our nation needs borders and they need laws because if you don't have either, you're not a nation. Okay, so there's a place for both of those things. But what we need to have And what we need to hear the scriptures loudly say, and what Ecclesiastes is going to say this morning to us as well, is that as Christians, we don't sit idly by to those who are suffering injustice and oppression. We engage. The Samaritan had every cultural reason to just keep on walking by. He had every ethnic reason to keep on walking by. He had every every national reason to keep on walking by. But he stooped down and at his own cost paid for the man to get well. That's how Jesus answers the question of what it looks like to love your neighbor. And so to claim Christ as Savior is to increasingly take on the moral and ethical lifestyle and teaching of Jesus Christ. If you were with us in January, the very, the very first day of the year, 
Uh, we looked at Colossians chapter 3, where Paul says, put on clothes, take off clothes. And this, this is what we're talking about. Paul uses clothes to illustrate it, but that's what we're talking about. It is to increasingly adopt and live to take on the moral and ethical teaching and standard of Jesus Christ. So we grow as disciples in that, that we think more like Jesus, we live more like Jesus, we act more like Jesus, we interact with other people more like Jesus. That's part of what it means to be a Christian, is that we grow in that. We don't do those things so that we become Christians, but they become part of what identifies us as Christians. So uh, let me meddle just a little bit, all right? Let me meddle. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll preface this by saying, um, I've not been on Facebook much of this week, so nobody interpret this as a direct um, statement against what you might have posted or not. Um, I've not been in any of your works or workplaces this week, so I have no idea what you said in the workroom or the break room. I've not been in any of your homes this week, so I have no idea what your conversations have been like there. And I certainly have not been in your mind, so I don't know what your heart feels, and I don't, what, I don't know what your mind thinks. Okay, so if any of this lands a punch, you need to understand that's a punch from the Holy Spirit, not from Tim, because I've just not been in your world to, to lay blows, and quite frankly, uh, if, if I knew directly there was blows to be laid, I'd sit down and have that conversation with you one-on-one, -on -one, okay? So I'm not looking to back slap anybody here this morning, but I think there's some questions we need to ask ourselves. Have your thoughts and conversations this week about those pursuing immigration or asylum reflected the commands of both the Old Testament and New Testament to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, these are desperately complex issues because there's, there's nations involved, and again, borders and laws are needed, or you don't become a nation. So I'm, I'm, not, I'm not espousing a one-size-fits-all answer here, because these are desperately complex but I want to ask you, are your thoughts and conversations reflective of the command to love your neighbor as yourself and to do so as Jesus defined? Jesus did not define this man's neighbor as those he hung out with in the lawyer break room. He identified them as the people who culturally, ethnically, and nationally were so different than them that there was hatred between these groups. Here's another question, and we'll tie together one of our core pieces to our church vision. Would the person or people you spoke about or thought about feel welcome to sit next to you this morning in this service based on what you said? Because our speech as Christians need to be a very specific way. It needs to be seasoned with salt, Colossians chapter 4. It needs, to, it needs to have a preserving character and quality to it. Ephesians chapter 4, it needs to be appropriate and fitting to the occasion. It needs to give grace. So as you, if, you, if your thoughts, maybe it is just thoughts, got, got put before those that you were thinking about, would they feel welcome to come with you this morning and sit next to you? If not, you've, you've got a gospel issue. Because as a believer, you've been called to spread the gospel. And maybe the people that you spoke to 
spoke about? Would they feel welcome to sit next to you based on what you said, based on what you posted, based on those conversations? If not, we've got a gospel issue. It's not just a national issue. And there are national issues here. There are things that need to be thought through and, 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 and done so in a, in a, a well-thought-out manner. But as believers, we've been called to first identify our primary citizenship as kingdom Christians. And we can never let what we say about or to others damage this mission that we have to take the gospel to them. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray. And then we're going to hop into Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And Lord willing, we're going to see how all the things actually connect to the text in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Because they connect, in, in, in at least my understanding, in, in some really dynamic ways. Where Solomon deals with injustice and oppression in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And it's, it's just one of those reasons why we walk through books of the Bible. Um, because here we are. And here our nation is. And these things matter. And we need to think a certain way as Christians. And we need to have our thoughts informed by the scriptures. So let's pray. God, we, we just ask that you'd come and you'd help us to think in ways that honor and glorify you. That you help us think in ways that are, are accurate to, to what Jesus taught, to how he lived, that, that reflect well the gospel. God, please help us to, to not take really unbelievably complex issues and try to reduce them down to, to sound bites to win points in an argument, but to, to have a, a, a compassion. And, and God, I, I confess, I don't know what all the answers are to this, but I, I know what you've called us to do as your people. You've called us to love others. And so God, I, I just pray that you'd help us to to, to be convicted where we've been wrong in this area. And God, would you even give our, our church the grace it needs to, to engage in these things in a way that, that honors and glorifies you and, and, and does love you primarily as our first and only priority and expresses that through love for our neighbors. And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. All right, head on over then to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We are going to close down Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We're going to step into Ecclesiastes chapter 4. And here Solomon is going to now turn his focus and attention again back to what happens under the sun. And if you've, if you've been with us, or maybe you're just coming in for the first time this morning, uh, the phrase under the sun, as Solomon uses it, is a way for him to describe observing life here on earth without any consideration of what God is doing. So for us to understand Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we need to go beyond the sun. We need to have other scriptures read into our conclusions because if, if, if not, we're going to walk out this morning probably more depressed than we've actually been yet in this book because he turns the lamp on a dark, dark corner of humanity. 
And for us to understand and make any sense of that, we've got to go beyond the sun. And we've got to ask ourselves the question, as God's people in this wicked, evil world, what is our responsibility? And how does the gospel actually do anything to this or about this wickedness? So Solomon uses the phrase, under the sun, to describe his observations about life here on earth. And what he did in, verse, in chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes is he, he, he said, all right, I want us to think about pleasure, and I want us to think about hedonism. And in chapter 2, he stepped into wisdom and hard work. And if we're honest, our culture is going to celebrate those things to a certain end. And what's really frustrating about our culture is that hedonism is, is celebrated until you cross an invisible line and then you're, and then you're castigated for it. Just, just think about how we, we see on TV and how um, uh, movie stars and, and musicians, are, are, their lifestyles are celebrated and it's just the greatest thing ever and they're, they're just indulging in all of this immora- immorality, but then you, they cross a line which nobody ever defined for them. It's this invisible line and then all of a sudden they've gone too far. And the same we can see with hard work where hard work is championed in our culture until some invisible line gets crossed and then we actually sit back and we evaluate, oh, he really missed out on life. And, and, and hard work actually happens a lot more in retrospect than it does in prospect because what you're going to find with hard work is that it's the dad at the end of his life who realized, I've got a lot of assets but I have no relationship with my kids. That then our culture is going to go, well, yeah, you kind of missed it. But they were unwilling and unable to say any of that all the way up until the end because everything up until he crossed that invisible line says, yeah, you just keep working hard. Keep climbing the corporate ladder. Keep putting in the 80 hours a week. Keep bringing in the paycheck. Your kids are going to be fine. But then he crosses that line and you realize, no, his kids aren't fine. His kids are a train wreck and they don't need a trust fund. They needed a daddy. And so where our culture would see hedonism and wisdom and hard work as things that are to be celebrated, Solomon turns the spotlight on the deepest, darkest parts of our world. And he takes a look at the injustice in the world. And I'll tell you on the front side, and we'll spend some significant time on the back side thinking about this so that we don't leave here just feeling like blah, the answer to these things this morning and what Solomon reveals is Christ. There is an answer to them. Solomon doesn't give it to us. We have to go outside of Ecclesiastes to get it. We have to go beyond the sun to understand it. But there is an answer, and that answer is the person of Jesus Christ and the gospel. So think about this as we expose and turn our attention to injustice. We all have in our hearts and in our lives a sense where I'm quite frankly First and foremost, wanting mercy to be extended to me and justice to be extended to you. Okay, so if I get pulled over for speeding, I'm wanting that police officer to show me mercy. But if you whiz past me, I'm really wanting you to get pulled over also, right? Like, I I want you to get busted the way I get busted, especially if mercy doesn't come. If I get the ticket, then I really want you to get a ticket as well. Well, there was an author and a pastor who wrote um, about this injustice and just kind of the world system, and it's a bit of an extended quote, but I think it has some appropriateness for us. And he writes this, wouldn't it be great after a driver ran you off the road, his car would break down five minutes later? 
Or someone cheated you in business and he would go bankrupt the next month. Or if someone got angry and yelled at you, her teeth would fall out that night. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Uh, But unfortunately, you'd have to live in the same universe. So if every time you gossiped about somebody, your tongue would turn gang green. Every time you lusted or envied another person, more of your hair would fall out. Every time you spent money on something you didn't need, the food in your refrigerator would rot overnight. And what this author is is doing, he's trying to just kind of turn the spotlight on the fact that, that if we're honest, we want mercy for ourselves and judgment for other people, especially those who may wrong us. And we're in those moments not actually considering the fact that against a holy and righteous God, we are just as deserving of judgment as they are. And that's what Solomon steps into. So let's go to verse 16 together. Let's see what Solomon has to say. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Now, the word righteousness there would be a word to express right actions or deeds. It's actually another way of expressing justice. And you can find a a comparable use of that word in Leviticus 19. Um, And so what Solomon is saying is he begins to turn the spotlight on what happens in the courtroom. And if you were here with us during December and you thought through as we looked at, the, at, at Micah and what Micah had to say, then you're going to remember that Micah turns the spotlight on the religious rulers of Jerusalem and Judea to say, you guys have perverted justice. You have inverted what is wrong and you have called it right. You have inverted what is right and you have called it wrong and you have done these things and it is a shame and the Lord is bringing judgment because of that. Now, if we go back even a little farther, if you were here with us during the James series, at the very end in James chapter 5, James talks about this very same thing as well. And he says, look, the, 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 the laborers are being oppressed. And what happens is that the employers then go to these courts and they find justices that are willing to pervert justice for a price and the laborers never get their wage. And so these things that Solomon turns the light on are things that we see throughout Israel's history, things that we see out in the history of the early church, and they're most certainly things that we see in today's criminal justice system as well. But Solomon turns his focus and attention on the courts. And I think just as we consider Solomon and and who he is and the fact that he's king, this has got a more fascinating um, bent to it. Because as king, he wouldn't have been waiting for the Senate to confirm his justice appointments. He just picks who the justices are going to be. And he puts them in place. And I think there's a a bit of an even greater bitter reflection here. Solomon is at the end of his life looking back, considering the fact that the men he put into place have perverted justice. And they have disobeyed what God said in his law, again, Leviticus 19, I believe it's verse 18, um, the Lord says, look, you're not to give partiality to the poor, you're not to show partiality to the rich, you are to allow the facts to stand, 
and for the cases to be weighed on those merits. And here Solomon observes, that's not taking place. But he continues in verse 17, and he says, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and every work. So there's a few things that Solomon begins to do here now. One of them is he begins to connect this language back to what we thought about last week, and that there's a time for every matter and every work, and there is a God, a sovereign God, who is sitting above and in control of all of those things. But notice what he also says then specifically in regards to justice and the perversion of it, God will judge. And there will be no perversion in his court. It will be fully perfect and righteous. And God will judge. So as Solomon returns to these themes of there's a time and a matter and God is in control, he's, he's indicating that even in the midst of injustice, there will be a day where those who are guilty of that, will have to answer to a judge who will not judge with injustice. He will judge with perfect justice. And he continues in verse 18, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. And here Solomon takes a really, really dark turn. And this dark turn will carry us all the way through to chapter 4, verse 3, as Solomon is looking at and evaluating humanity based on its actions. And he says, look, I, I, God is testing them. That word testing, it, it, it has the sense of revealing. So it's not simply the, the sense of, of, of passing or failing, but it is the sense that something's going to demonstrate true character. So what is, what is God testing? Solomon says, I said in my heart with regards to the children of man that God is testing, God is revealing that they may see themselves that they are but beasts. Here's what the, re, the revelation is. Here was, here's what the test is to indicate that you and I are able to look at humanity. We're able to look at the world and what takes place here under the sun and we're able to realize that despite our best efforts, the problem does not exist outside of ourselves. The problem exists inside. That there is a depravity in my heart that leads me to act a certain way. That there is, a, there is an inherent wickedness and evil that leads me to certain actions. And that outside of Christ and outside of the gospel, that will happen. So let's just consider some of the things that happen in our world in regards to us being beasts. Again, the problem's not external. The solution's not internal. The problem's internal and the solution's external in the person of Jesus Christ. So as beasts, we're instinctively self-protecting. Instinctively self-protecting. Outside of Christ and the person and work of Jesus in my life transforming me, and perhaps you know unbelievers and some of this may ring true, I, I don't know, but there, there is a, there's probably a devouring of life for those that are perceived to be lower on a food chain. Somebody ever lied about you at work to get a leg up? 
instinctively devouring those they consider to be lower than them on the food chain. I mean, you talk about the, the claw and the fight in corporate America. That This is case in point of God revealing to us and what we can see and observe in our own culture that we're just beasts. So despite for all the push for people to be better, I mean, John Lennon's song, Imagine, kind of had this utopian idea of one day we weren't going to deal with any of this junk before. Now, now, here's what's the really interesting thing. John Lennon imagines Revelation 21 and 22. He imagines the end that only is found in and of and through the person of Jesus Christ. So he had a good dream, but he's never going to or was never able to realize it outside of Jesus. But if we just think about what takes place, that despite all of the push for being better people, there's still an inherent depravity in humanity. So a couple years ago, the most popular novels that took the world by storm, or at least America by storm, and then the movies that follow were The Hunger Games. Anybody familiar? Hunger Games, all right? That book series, the whole plot of the series and the book was that you get 12 kids from 12 different parts of post-apocalyptic America, you put them in an arena, and you let them fight to the death like animals. We don't have to go far to see what Solomon is saying reflected in our own culture. And there's, there's some really cool gospel lines that you can see in the Hunger Games series, but time's not going to give us to go there. But there was a sport created in that series that people would kill themselves for the viewing of a post-apocalyptic America to watch. And they would cheer on their representative as they killed the next competitor. Well, how about what's not fiction? Sex trafficking and prostitution soon to be the most profitable industry in the world. Right now, it's second to the drug trade. Experts anticipate in the next four or five years, it takes number one. You think modern-day slavery doesn't exist, you're wrong. It exists perhaps in greater ways and capacities than slavery has ever existed. Abortion. Nearly 60 million babies have been killed since Roe vs. Wade was approved or passed by our Supreme Court. The year 2016 was the year that Chicago saw the most homicides in nearly 20 years. Syria, since 2011, a near estimated 500,000 people have died because of the war. 2016 was the largest year for Christian martyrdom that the world has ever seen. More believers were killed for their faith in 2016 than in any other year in human history. So when Solomon says that we're beasts, we don't have much to stand on to counter. Because he turns his spotlight on the very worst the world has to offer. And it's true. It's there. And we can't ignore that it's there. And he continues in verse 19, For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. So he's just considering the fact that, you know what? Everybody's going to go to the grave. 
They all have the same breath. They all have lungs. They just, they all breathe. And man has no advantage. And there's a vanity here because mankind and animal kind has the same end. And it's death. And it's to be buried. All go to one place. All are from dust and to dust all return. Verse 21, he considers, who knows whether the spirit of a man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. He, again, is just, he's observing life under the sun. He's not bringing God into the equation at this point. And he's saying, look, we don't know what eternity looks like. Now, this verse does not support a claim that all dogs go to heaven. But he's saying, look, from a human perspective, we don't have the capacity or the ability to think through the fact that there's really no distinct difference. And he's just concluding from his observations under the sun that this is a very, very wicked world. And in verse 22, he writes, So I saw that there was nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him. Now, this is a very interesting statement here because it's one of the what's called carpe diem statements in Ecclesiastes. Carpe diem being Latin for seize the day. And there's several times, at least two or three, that Solomon has already told us look, there's nothing better than for you to eat, for you to work, for you to enjoy the gifts that God has given you. And here he seems to make a similar statement once again, but there's a few distinct differences here. Because Solomon is not trying at this point in time to bring God in to try to make sense of the world. Because this is the only carpe diem statement in the entire book that God is not specifically mentioned as the one giving the gifts. If you look through all of the other ones, you will see that God is specifically mentioned as a gift giver so you and I are to draw near and enjoy. He changes the lens and the focus here. And it's very dark, and it's very pessimistic. And he says, so I saw that there was nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work, for that's what's going to happen. It's very similar to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 32, where he's asking this question, if the resurrection is not true, then you know what? Let us eat and drink, because tomorrow we're going to die. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's making the argument, the resurrection is true. It is true, and because it's true, then, then we're not to just eat, drink, for tomorrow we're going to die. We're, there, there's some significant things that our lives need to be aimed at. But here Solomon, reflecting just at what is under the sun, says, look, it just life is punching the clock. It's in the midst of untold evil, and it's dark. And then one day you're going to die and you're going to be buried. And if that wasn't cheerful enough, he continues in chapter 4 and actually will push this all the way to its conclusion that if these are the true realities in life, it is better to actually never have lived. Now Solomon is not arguing for suicide. We just need to mention and note that on the front side of this. But what he is saying is that if all we see and experience here and now is the vanity and worthlessness of what humanity has to offer as beasts, then we're better off dead or not born. 
So let's just consider his argument that he makes here. Let's place it in some of those contexts that we thought through as illustrations of how we're beasts. If all the person from Chicago knew was family members being shot and killed, Solomon would say it would be better for them to not live than to live with that reality. If all the person from Syria knows is bombs and war, then living would be worse than dying. If all the person involved in sex trafficking knows is other human beings ravaging their body for selfish pleasure, then living is far worse than dying. That's where he goes in chapter 4. You can see it in verse 1. He says, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. They had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead that were already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been born, for he has not seen the evil deeds that are under the sun. Do you see the argument that Solomon is making? If this is all that life has to offer to it, if you're alive, just punch the clock because you don't have any other option and try to find some significance by and from that, but it's actually better if you just don't live if all you know is evil, oppression, and injustice. He exposes a really dark, dark view of life. But it is against this darkness that the gospel shines most brightly. And again, in regards to us being beasts, part of what the Lord is revealing is that, you know what, the problem actually lies inside of me. And that, that's not where the solution is going to be found. That's where the problem lies. And so if the problem's inside, then the solution's got to come from outside, which is in very fact what the gospel declares. See, the gospel is the answer for our own personal sin and depravity, and personally for everyone who places their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Because in and of myself, left to myself, I am depraved. And I was born with a sin nature, and what I will do is I will spend all of my days just living out the most natural things that that sin nature will want me to do. It's what Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, when he walks through in verses 1 to 10, who the pre-Christian person is and what now has happened as God has gloriously made them alive. And so the gospel, it comes and it brings an external solution to my internal problem, and it is the answer to all of those who place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ for their own personal sin and depravity. But the gospel also, through the church proclaiming the gospel, is God's answer to society's sin and depravity. And the church has a responsibility to engage in the world and, 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 and herald what, and proclaim the injustices that we see and proclaim a just Savior who is there to forgive those wicked, sinful, depraved people and provide hope to those who have been oppressed. And so the gospel rightly acknowledges the injustices and oppressions of life as sin and wickedness. 
It doesn't pretend that the horrors of Aleppo, abortions, Chicago homicides, or the local and global sex trade is anything other than horrific. And as believers, we have a responsibility to engage those things as the ones who maybe more loudly than anyone else say, this is wrong. Because this is an affront to the character of God. Justice, even human justice, our legal justice system is based upon foundations of the fact that there is a just judge and that there is an absolute standard of right and wrong. And when that is perverted, we more than anybody else should be willing and ready to stand up and say, not going to happen. This is wrong. And we don't call people to turn and trust in their own goodness and humanity because the problem is inside. It's not where the solution is. See, the gospel provides an answer to the wickedness and inhumanity for all who will believe. The gospel actually will meet people's God-given sense of justice and their cries for it with the truth that injustice only lasts for a season. That there will be a day when the just judge will rightly judge. And so for those suffering under evil and the hands of oppressors and suffering under injustice, whether it be the injustice of, 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 of just kind of life's actions or whether it be the injustices of the court systems, because those certainly have happened as well, the gospel provides hope and unconditional love. And hope not just for their circumstances, but for their own sin and wickedness. And so those who have been given hope that God, as the just judge, will one day right all the wrongs, and those who have been saved by this God who sent His Son to pay for my wrongs, we're called to proclaim this good news. And folks, Islam doesn't have it. Buddhism doesn't have it. Hinduism doesn't have it. Karma doesn't have it. To be quite frank, those suffering in an Arab world under the, the, the uh, Islamic governments are far more readily able to acknowledge that, you know what, if this is the best that Islam has, this isn't worth it. And as believers, you know what we have to offer them? That's the best Islam has. And you need to consider the gospel. You need to consider the fact that, that, that God himself came in the form of a man to, to deal with sin and depravity. And he one day will right all of these wrongs. And there is only a season, no matter how dark this season is, there is only a season this is part of what the church is called to. See, we're not called to sit on the sidelines when we see these things. We're called to engage. And we have it. We have the answer. We have 
what He has done in us of saving us from our own sin and depravity. And we're able to help make sense of the world's wickedness and depravity. Because we don't excuse it. We're just able to rightly acknowledge that, yeah, it's evil. There's no other way to classify it. It's evil. And Jesus came and he came to deal with evil. Both your evil, but then also society's evil. So this morning as we wrap up, we're just going to turn our, our focus and attention on what Christ has done. And that he paid it all. And all to him we owe. See, there is an allegiance to Christ and Christ only that should be at the forefront of our lives. This is, in many ways, our Christian anthem. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it right as snow. But also, please do not miss what I believe is a call from the Old Testament all the way through to the New, to not just acknowledge love for God, but also love for our neighbor. And yes, that is, that is complex in certain areas. But we don't check out. We don't sit on the sidelines. We find ways to engage in ways that are faithful, in ways that glorify and honor the Lord who has saved us.